0: We're going to John chapter number 8 today, John chapter number 8. I'm going to read a few other scriptures, uh, just one or two, and then with the help of the Holy Spirit, kind of uh, work them all together. The two that I'll read before I get to John 8 will go up on the screen, but just find your place in John chapter 8. In Micah chapter 6, verse number 8, the Bible says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, or to live justly, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And then John chapter number 8, beginning in verse 1 but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and when Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst, Jesus then raised himself up and he, he and saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Interesting point is that we think we serve a God that condemns us because of our sin. And we sometimes as Christians are condemning to those that are in sin. But I want you to know condemnation never frees anybody. That Jesus has never called us to condemn condemn people because of sin. He's called us to preach a message to them that will free them from their sin. Amen. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Today, we continue in our series, Answers Biblical Answers for a Broken Nation, where we are looking to the Lord for direction in the midst of this ever mounting division in our land. The political powers that be, if you've observed, are engaged in a tainted type of tug of war where we are the rope. One side is pulling left, the other side's pulling right. The result is there is an ever growing tension brewing amongst the masses and we have become a divided people. We are choosing sides, and worst of all, we are developing vitriol for our fellow Americans. And it's into this political zoo that we need a voice. We need a voice of perspective, and we need a voice of calm, and we need a voice of truth. And I am convinced that that voice is the voice of Jesus. He is the voice of truth. He is the one who cuts through all of the confusion and the chaos and, and tells us what is right and what is just and what the Lord requires of us. And so, um, so far in this series, we have found out what the Lord requires of us when it comes to racial reconciliation. And we found out what the Lord requires of us when it comes to loving our neighbor. And we found out what the Lord requires of us when it comes to using our words. Today, we turn our attention to Another big issue in our land that is dividing us, and that is the issue of justice. And so I want to minister to you on the subject, liberty and justice for all. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you make this message real and relevant and full of truth? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Justice coming to the surface in America should not be something that surprises us. After all, our Pledge of Allegiance says, with liberty and justice for all. Not only that, but our Statue of Liberty stands tall in the New York Harbor, and it beckons all with this fundamental American value as it cries out to the four corners of the earth, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Lady justice is often depicted to us in artwork, and photography, someone who is blindfolded, asserting again the ideal, the American value that justice must be applied to all equally and without regard to wealth or power or race or some other status or title. Our Liberty Bell is a symbol of one of our great American documents, the Declaration of Independence, it was erected when our country was first founded with the belief that people were empowered by God with certain unalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That same liberty bell is inscribed with a scripture verse. Leviticus chapter 25, verse number 10 says, And you shall consecrate the 15th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants of Incidentally, that Liberty Bell is cracked, perhaps as a sign that this great American value of liberty and justice for all may also be fractured. But I want to move away from this as being a fundamental American value to moving to the fact that it is a value in a higher kingdom. The value is that of a Christian value. You and I are called by God to be people who stand for liberty and justice for all. And I don't have time to call out all of the uh, instances in our land in recent times of injustice, but I do want to take a moment to invite your prayers for the family of Botham Jean, who was uh, killed unnecessarily and who they are processing through. She, he was killed by an off-duty cop who was still in uniform. I also want to invite your prayers for all of our heroes in Blue, who stand up and protect us each and every day, who are often painted with a broad stroke of injustice in the face of cases like this, which clearly seem to be unjust. And it's with that that I want us to go to the Scripture and find out, what does God have to say about liberty and justice for all? I want to put your heart at ease. This is not a political message. No message in this series has been a political message My job is not to teach you politics. My job is to teach you the truths of the Word of God. And with those truths, it is up to you to decide which side you want to give your support to. But I do want to teach you about this subject because it is all over the pages of Scripture in so many ways. And in one of our opening texts, we find God putting this right out in the forefront of what he expects of you and I as followers of Christ. Micah chapter 6 verse number 8 says, "He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love, mercy, and to walk humbly before or with your God. What does it mean to do justice? Well, in order for us to understand that, we first must understand what justice is. Justice comes from the Hebrew word, and I'll probably not pronounce it correctly, but you won't know that unless you're Hebrew. And the Hebrew word is mishpah. It's spelled M-I-S-H-P-A-T, mishpah. And it means giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection, or care. That is what the biblical word justice means. And also in the sentence, you will notice that there is a Hebrew word um, used that is translated mercy. And that Hebrew word is, I think pronounced, chized, and it is uh, spelled C-H-E-S-E-D-H. And this describes God's unconditional grace and compassion. And so when we put those two words together, to do justice means to give people, all people, what they are due with God's unconditional grace and compassion. It means not looking to destroy or hurt people when they deserve punishment, but rather to measure out punishment with God's grace and compassion. It means to see needs and meet those needs with God's unconditional grace and compassion. It means to see injustice and to rectify it with God's unconditional grace and compassion. It means to right a wrong with God's unconditional grace and compassion as the driving force behind righting the wrong. We we are called to be people who do justice. Now, when we talk about justice from a biblical perspective, we have to understand that justice is always linked in the Bible to certain groups of people, namely groups of people that are oppressed and marginalized and, and, and devalued by society. And so when we come to, for instance, Zechariah chapter 7, verse number 10, listen to how justice is linked to the way that we care for this grouping of people, do not be oppressed. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the alien, which means the immigrant or the foreigner or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Here's the reason for coming to this verse. Notice the people who justice is linked to. The the fatherless, the widow, the alien or the immigrant, and the poor. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse number 19. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger. That's again the immigrant or the foreigner. The fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Now, what does that verse mean? It means that when justice is not distributed evenly to all people, regardless of their background, regardless of what is stacked against them or not stacked against them, not everybody can say amen. When justice is only given to some people and other people are not given the same kind of justice, then we don't get a collective amen from the whole nation. And so what God is saying to Israel is you need to be a nation that has equal justice for all, liberty and justice for all. This was not just an American ideal. It was an ideal that came from heaven to uh, from God to his people. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse number 3. Again, the link between doing justice, and certain groups of people who are oppressed and marginalized. Thus says the Lord God, execute judgment and righteousness. Now, righteousness would be better translated. It's more closely akin to justice. It means to do what is right, okay? To execute justice, we could say, and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger. Again, that's the alien, that's the immigrant, that's the foreigner. To the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. And so I want you to see the correlation between doing justice giving people what is due them, what is right to them as human beings with God's compassion and God's grace as the motivating factor, that link between that kind of justice and people who are oppressed and marginalized. Matter of fact, let me push it a little bit further. This is not supposed to be optional for the Christian life. I know you're all going to say amen a little harder in just a little while. I know. I'm I'm just... Just setting the stage. I'm messing with some of y'all's head right now. Some of y'all are kind of thinking, where is he going with this? And what is he trying to say? I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. Again, it's not a request if you're a Christian. Justice. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Notice the language. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord, what's the word? Require of you. But to do justice. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, this is not something that God is suggesting to us as people who are Christians. This is something that God is saying, listen, if you want to be representatives of me, this is not just an intake religion. This is not just where, where I give you a bunch of stuff and I make sure that your soul is right. Of course, that's the most important thing, right? But once you receive eternal life, you are supposed to be people that represent me. And the way that you represent me is I require your life to be one that does justice. And this word requirement is so strong, we have to realize it's kind of like a job posting, if you will. Right. And so um, if I were to post that we had a job opportunity at the church and I would say the requirements are you need to have a doctorate in theology in order to apply for this position. And you also need to have 10 years experience uh, being part of a church of 2000 or more. And then you showed up and I said, can I can, where'd you go to school to get your doctorate? And you said, well, I didn't. And I said, well, what are you here for? It's a requirement of the job. You don't get hired unless you have that requirement of us as Christians is to do justice. And so we find strong language throughout the Bible as it pertains to us doing justice. Proverbs 31, verse eight, speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Notice again, the the language that's being used. Let me push it a little bit further since you're already a little uncomfortable. Um, To not do justice is considered sin. This is going to get deep, deep like that Prescott going to Devon Austin for a touchdown deep. Giants, y'all remember that on the opening drive, and it's going to get deep. Job chapter 31, verse number 13, to not do justice is sin. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless... But from my youth, I reared them as a father would. And from my birth, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in the court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of His splendor, I could not do such things." If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these would also be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God. So... God is speaking very seriously. This is not a subject that we can take lightly as Christians, this this area of liberty and justice for all. Matter of fact, what you'll notice is that God um, uh, always identifies with those who cannot defend themselves. All throughout Scripture, it's what I call scandalous sovereignty. Let me give you a couple of examples of this in Scripture. Psalm 146, I said to the first service that this is not going to be a service where I sweat a lot. We all used to be, you know, sweating and screaming and hollering and my veins popping out and all that kind of stuff. This is going to be kind of like a teaching, okay? So, Psalm chapter 146, verse 7, although I wound up sweating a lot anyway. Um, Psalm 146, verse number 7. Speaking of God, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom To the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who have been bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. Notice how God identifies with the marginalized and the oppressed. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God. In other words, he's not like any of the other gods. Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you glad God stands in a class all by himself, that he's alone by himself, that he has no equal, that no one is a match for him? Here's why. Watch this. He's, He's mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. In other words, and what I love about this is God doesn't care who you are, who you know. He doesn't care what the color of your skin is. He doesn't care what the size of your wallet is. When it comes to justice, everybody gets judged the same exact way. That's why the Bible says at the end of time, both the small and the great will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what? They will all be judged by the exact same standard. Their money is not going to mean anything at that time. Color of their skin is not going to mean anything at that time. Who they know is not going to mean anything at that time. How they were raised is not going to mean anything at that time. At that time, there's only going to be one standard. Have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? He said he he doesn't show partiality nor take any bribes. He ministers justice, notice the correlation, for the fatherless, the widow. He loves the stranger, and he gives him food and clothing. Psalm 68, verse 4 and 5. Sing to God. Sing in praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless. A defender of the widows is God in his holy dwelling. Now you have to understand, in Bible times, this was scandalous sovereignty. In Bible times, all of the gods, and there were so many of them. I mean, they had, uh, even one particular nation would have hundreds of gods that were celebrated in that nation. And so all of these other gods would always identify with the rich and the powerful with with those who were in authority. And the reason why all the gods would always identify with these or the people would identify their gods with these was because they believed that if you were rich and if you were powerful, if you were influential and you were part of the ruling class, the reason why you were rich and powerful and influential and part of the ruling class is because you had the favor of the gods on your life. And so they would associate all of the gods with these these people who were, uh, quote-unquote, succeeding in life. And those that were marginalized and overlooked and oppressed, they, they said the reason why they were like that is because they did not have the favor of the gods. And into that society, here comes the God of gods, here comes the Lord of Lords, here comes the God who is great and mighty and who's different than any other God. And he says, listen, he says, I know that I am all by myself. I don't need to, to engender my greatness by associating with only the affluent and only the rich and only the ones that are powerful. But I can come here alongside of those that need a defender, I can come alongside of the fatherless. I I can come alongside of the poor. I can come alongside of the widow. I can come alongside of the overlooked. I can come alongside of the foreigner. And I could be their defender. And I could be the glory and the lifter of their head. I'm not just a God for these people. But I'm also a God for these people. Scandalous sovereignty in Bible times. And we ought to be grateful. And this is why God can identify with us in our weaknesses. The Bible says, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in every point tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. He feels us in our weaknesses. Why? Because he identifies with us in our weaknesses. Because he didn't stay in a palace. He left the palace and was born in a stable. He didn't stay uh, immune, but as he traded his immunity to become part of our community. He traded his divinity and took on our humanity. What did he do? He said, I'm not a God just for this group. Of people. I'm a God that identifies with this group of people. It's not that He doesn't love this group of people, but this group of people are don't need as much help practically as this group of people does. And so I want to stand by those that are oppressed and those that are marginalized. And and so He He's telling us that if we want to be like Him, that we also have to be willing to stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. This is an American value, but it's also a Christian value. In America, we knew this, right? So what, what do we develop in our legal system? If you can't afford a lawyer, we'll provide you with one. Why? You ever, you ever, why? Because we know that if you have a lawyer or the money to have a lawyer, you have a better chance at justice than if you don't have the money to have a lawyer. And so the attempt was to level the playing field. And so God is saying, listen, if you want to be like me, you need to be people who stand for this. Amazingly, Jesus walks into the temple, and he he had known them, had relationship with them, but they didn't know who he was. right? And so here's how he introduces himself to everybody. One day he walks into the temple, he grabs the book, opens it up to the place in the book of Isaiah, and reads this. Luke chapter 4, verse 19. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the whom? Don't be bashful, spit it right out. To the... He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm a God that that does justice. I'm a God that stands up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. And what God is in essence saying to us is he's answering the question all throughout scripture that Cain sarcastically asked him when he said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to the question is, yes, we are. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. We are supposed to be an advocate for the weak, a defender of the oppressed, a champion for the marginalized. This is our Christian duty, liberty and justice for all. However, um, is duty really a strong enough word to express how we should hold this value? And I think the answer is no, because how many of you know anytime that you do something out of obligation, It is only short-lived. Anytime you have something that is being pressed on you from the outside, you'll do it just because of the pressure. But once the pressure is taken off, you will revert back to your core or what is valuable. To you, or what is of value to you, and so um, the worst form of, of of getting somebody to do something is to make them do it. Because if you make them do it, they'll only do it out of obligation. And so, duty cannot be the motivation behind why we are people of justice. And so, with that, we launch into our largest text, John chapter number eight, where Jesus gives us some insight into the motivation behind why we should be people of justice. And in John chapter 8, we find that the Pharisees catch a woman in the very act of adultery, which we'll break down in just a little bit, a minute there, catch her in the very act, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, and they say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone her to death. What do you say? And when they catch her in the very act, there's a whole lot of speculation on the amount, uh, on the part of theologians for what this meant that they caught her in the act. And they talk about the fact that in order for them to catch her in the act, it may have been a setup. It may have been that they called one of their buddies, they called, it might have even been another Pharisee. They called one of the people who may have been in church next to them every single week. The person may have been married themselves. And they said, we got a proposal for you that you can't miss on. The proposal is, we're going to put you in a situation where you can have illicit sex with somebody who is not your wife, but nobody's ever going to find out about it. You remember that question was posed in that movie, would you cheat on your spouse if she wouldn't find out about it or he wouldn't find out about it. They said, bingo, we're going to do that for you. And here's what we need you to do. We need you to tell us where this is going to go down and how this is going to go down. And we want you to invite somebody who you know will fall into this particular trap with you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to catch you in the very act, but we're going to let you go. And we're going to take the woman and we're going to throw the woman at the feet of Jesus, not because we are incensed by the injustice that has taken place, but because we want to trap Jesus. We want to get Jesus to do something that is wrong. And so it's not that we have the woman's best interest in mind. It's that we have our own agenda in mind. So we're going to take the woman and we're going to use her as a pawn. I'm preaching real good right now. In order to advance our agenda, which is to trap Jesus. And the reason why we want to trap Jesus is because we don't like how he's interpreting the law of Moses. We don't like what he's doing to our religious system. We don't like the fact that Jesus is taking the law and instead of using it to condemn people... He's using it to free people and bring them into this marvelous thing called the kingdom of God. And we hate the fact that he's making people who are overlooked and marginalized and ostracized like the fatherless, like the widow, like the poor, uh, uh, like, like the immigrant, think that they actually have the favor of God when we know that the favor of God is supposed to rest only with those who have a successful appearance. To them. And so they take this woman and they bring her to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, What do you say we should do? What they're trying to do is bring Jesus to a place where he's in a box. Because in Bible times, during uh, uh, where, where Rome had, been, had conquered all of these different nations, they allowed a lot of the nations to practice their own religions and to do some form of self-government, especially as it pertained to their religious practices. But they forbid them to take it to an extreme, meaning that if their religion said you can kill somebody for doing thus and such, they wouldn't allow them to do that. They had to ask for permission from the Roman government officials in order to carry out an execution and so that's why Jesus was sentenced by Pilate and not by Caiaphas because it would have been against Roman law for that to happen And so what they do is they come to Jesus and they said, what do you say? If Jesus says stone her, what Jesus is doing is he's going against the Roman law. The Roman law says you can't order uh, an execution without getting permission. And so now they've trapped Jesus. They go back to the Roman authorities. They say this rabbi has ordered an execution without your approval and they get Jesus killed for doing it. But if he says don't stone her, then they go back to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish religion. And they were the ones that were supposed to issue edicts of execution. And so if he denied the law of Moses by saying, don't stone her, they run back to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin issues the edict to crucify Jesus or to kill Jesus. So either way, Jesus answers the question, Jesus gets put to death. That was the issue Not what was happening to the woman. They're trying to put God in a box. Have you ever tried to put God in a box? Well, if I do this, and I do that, and I do the other thing, then I've got God in a box. And God has to respond out of some type of human obligation that God may have. But if I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do the other thing, then God can't respond because I haven't earned his response. Can I tell you what God loves to do with the boxes that we put him in? He likes to blow up the boxes. Can't put God in a box. And so Jesus bends down. He stoops down in the ground as if the Bible says he doesn't hear them. They ask him the question, and I've told you this before. Just because somebody asks you a question don't mean you have to answer the question. Who told you? Jesus knows the evil intent of their heart. He knows that that, that any answer to the question is a trap. So he ignores them. And they're like, Jesus? Hello? Anybody home? McFly? Some of y'all have no idea what that means. And, And it's been speculated. What did Jesus do? What did he write? Why did he stoop? Some have speculated that he stooped down in order to pause long enough to figure out his response. I don't think this was Jesus. I mean, it's good for us to pause before we speak last week, right? Because we don't necessarily have infinite wisdom. We need to get in touch with our our wisdom source, right? And so many times our mind is going in all different directions that we need to just Pause to figure out what we say So we could speak from the bottom of our heart Instead of the top of our head If you weren't here last week, go get the message But Jesus was God Wisdom personified He knew the evil intents of their heart Even before they thought the evil intents of their heart He didn't need to pause to figure out How he was going to respond Others have speculated that In taking his finger and writing in the sand Sort of like a sandlot quarterback You know, drawing a play in the crowd that Jesus was in essence telling them you're trying to use the very law that I wrote with my finger in stone tablets against me. You're trying to take what I said and use it against You're trying to take what I said and use it against me. This sounds so familiar, doesn't it? How many's ever been in a situation with somebody trying to take what you said and use it against you? You know why? Because people are evil. At the very core, Listen, we have to understand this about human nature. This is why we need a savior. We have to understand this about human nature. Human nature is to use whatever, whenever, however, in order to get what we want. It doesn't matter whether we got a twist. It doesn't matter whether we have to turn. It doesn't matter whether we have to do something that is inappropriate. As long as the outcome, we live as human beings with the motto that the ends justifies the means. Because we have straight away from God. And so some have supposed that Jesus was saying that. I believe that what Jesus was doing was he was to the letter of the law obeying Roman law and Moses's law. They thought that he had he didn't have that option. How many of you know when, when you think all the options are taken away from you, I just want you to know that when God is on your side, you got options. God's always got options. There, there's nothing that God can't do. It doesn't matter if this has been taken or that has been taken. You've got options. And so he, he bends down. He writes because in the Roman law, a judge would have to write his edict down before he could pronounce it. And so Jesus, I believe, is writing down, the edict. What is he writing as an edict? He is writing his edict of each one of the accusers. That's what I believe. And I believe he's writing the edict, meaning the sin of each one of the accusers, and I'll pull it together in just a minute. So I believe what he's doing is he's he's looking out and, and he's looking at Rabbi John. He's looking at Rabbi John, he writes, Murder. Then he looks at Rabbi Joe. And he writes, thief. Then he looks at Rabbi Ron. And he writes, luster. Matter of fact, I believe he looks at them all. Lust. Every single one of them. Why? They caught her in the very act. Which means... They was watching. What was going on? They didn't have a phone. (laughs) They didn't have a computer. But they had a window to peep through. I'm wondering if they walked in backwards to capture the girl. (laughs) I'm wondering if they knocked to give them a chance to get decent, I'm betting they just watched a little while from the window. Yo, bro. Check that out right there. See? Yeah. <laughs> and so Jesus is writing their sins in the sand. Here's why I believe that because Jesus then said to fulfill the law of Moses, He is without sin cast the first stone, and they became convicted in their heart. What convicted them? What he was writing in the ground. The law of Moses said that if you bring an accusation against an individual that is worthy of the destruction of their life, that is worthy of them being stoned to death, that you had to be the one who threw the first stone. And the reason why you had to be the one who threw the first stone was because if you brought the accusation against an individual that could have them stoned to death and it was a false accusation, you were the one who was now going to be stoned to death. And so within their system, they had a function for making sure that accusations were not brought just for ungodly reasons. And so Jesus is sensing what is going on. And so Jesus says he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and leave. Do you know why? Listen to me. Because older people tend to be more pharisaical than younger people. Older people tend to look at younger generations, I can't believe they do this kind of stuff. Oh my goodness. All I got to say is the 60s. The 60s, the era of drugs. Free sex and all that kind of stuff and so on and so forth. See, we tend to forget as we get older that kids are trying to find their moral compass in life. And what they need is they don't need adults who are being pharisaical. They need adults who are being examples to them, who are coaching them, who are loving them to a place of a moral compass that is right. And so from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones And they leave. And Jesus is left having perfectly obeyed the law of Rome and the law of Moses alone with the woman. And now he gives us three reasons why you and I ought to be motivated beyond duty to be people of justice. And the first reason is because Jesus hates injustice. Do you know what this story is? This story is a classic case of injustice. You've probably never read it like that before. You've read it as a classic case of sin. Because we are so sin conscious because of where our religious values are that we sometimes miss some other meanings. And really, in this story, it is a classic case of injustice. And you said to me, Pastor, where is the injustice in the story? And it begs to ask the question: where is the man? Did the woman commit adultery by herself? Was this some type of foreign adultery that I'm unaware of that you can possibly engage in adultery against your spouse without the participation of someone else? And we know in this case that someone else was a man. Where is the man? Why was he let go without applying the law of Moses to him? That came from a man, by the way. I just think woman said that. What is, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that since you didn't apply the letter of the law to them, I cannot, in justice, apply the letter of the law to her. Since you didn't apply it to him, I cannot apply it to her. Because justice is... Treating everybody equally. Liberty and justice for all. Classic case of injustice. Now, I took a big concept and oversimplified it. Because it wasn't that Jesus excused the punishment. Matter of fact, um, he punished her. Or she already was punished. How did she get punished? Well, the man had a nice night in his mind, went back home to his family. His wife didn't know it. His kids didn't know it. His church friends didn't know it. And his job didn't know it. And he went back to his life and everything was fine with him. But she was embarrassed She was made a public disgrace. She was humiliated. She was shamed. And because of that, she was punished. But now Jesus had to issue what was due her, not with the purpose of destroying her, because that's not what justice is. Justice is giving people what they are due with compassion and grace as the motivation. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was able to do this also because what she was supposed to get, he was about to pay for. Thank God we are not held to the letter of the law. I don't know about you, but I just need to say, I think justice is not always holding somebody to the letter of the law because sometimes we've got to make sure that the punishment fits the crime in a particular situation, and sometimes there are extenuating circumstances that cause somebody to do X or Y or Z that have to be taken into consideration that mitigate what has happened and justice only happens when punishment is measured out in a mitigated fashion. Thank God we are not held to the letter of the law. I speak for me. Thank God I'm not held to the letter of the law. I know I'm just not good enough to do what God has called me to do. I know that in and of myself, I cannot stand here. Matter of fact, if I was being held to the letter of the law, I'd be dead right now. But somewhere long ago, justice met grace on the cross. And God treats me not as though I deserve But he treats me with compassion and with grace. And because God hates injustice, I hate it too. I love what God loves. I hate what God hates. Second reason that we ought to be people of justice is because our justification demands justice. Our justification demands justice. The Pharisees didn't start out as hypocrites. The Pharisees grew into their hypocrisy. Have you ever noticed that happens with Christians too? Christians usually don't start off as hypocrites. They start with sincere motives. I want to give my life to Jesus. You know, I want to have a relationship with him. But then what happens is they develop an, a superiority complex to everybody else that God hasn't worked out issues in their life yet. So they get saved, and God works out issues in their life, and then they get to a place where they don't have some of the issues that some other people have, and so they don't smoke anymore, they don't drink anymore, they don't curse anymore, they, they don't uh, you know ha- uh, have adultery anymore, uh, they stop watching porn on their phone, they stop watching porn on their computer, and then they hear that somebody else is doing those things, and they go, and they're a Christian? And all of a sudden, they they forget from whence God has taken them. That at day one, they weren't perfect. At day one, they were a sinner in need of a Savior. They were a sinner who needed God's grace. And now somewhere along the journey, they've got to the place where they think they don't need God's grace anymore. And so they look down at other people. The Pharisees didn't start off as hypocrites. Their intent, they became, Pharisee means separated one. They noticed that throughout Israel, they had fallen away from the law of Moses. So a group of well-meaning people who loved God got together and said that we are going to separate ourselves to be examples on how to live a godly life. But in the process of time, it became more than just being an example. It became pointing out all of the faults in everybody else and now using their religion as a way to make sure that their interpretation of things were everybody's interpretation of things. And so they became unjust in their treatment of people. And Jesus speaks to them about this in Matthew chapter 23, verse number 23. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Here's what a hypocrite is, by the way it literally means that, to come out from behind the mask. You know, in, in, in Bible days, they had these dramas where they would put masks on so that people who were sitting far away could see the expressions on their face. And what a hypocrite literally means is to come out from behind the mask. Go like this to your neighbor say, get the mask off. No, just plan. <laughs> it means that you're, you're one way when you're supposed to be one way, but you're another way when, you're, when, you're, when you don't have to be that way. He says, you hypocrites. He says, you give a tenth of your spices of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, most people wish that scripture ended right there because they'd be like, ah, see, see, Jesus said you don't have to tithe, Pastor, right there. There it is, there it is. Uh, Just read the next sentence, please. You should have practiced the latter, tithing, but without neglecting the former. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, as Christians, it's not like a buffet. You see all of what God says, and you go, I'll take that, but I don't like that. I'll take that, but I don't like that. And I'll take that, but I don't like that. And this fits my lifestyle, but that doesn't. And this fits my lifestyle, but that doesn't. Here's what Jesus says when it comes to Christianity. He says it's not all, it's not some, it's All. It's all in. It's everything that God says. And Jesus wasn't within his words about this. He said, if you're going to come after me, he said, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. He says, you can't be half in and half out. You can't be on the fence. You can't be lukewarm. I'd rather that you're hot or cold. Otherwise, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He says, all in, all in, all in, all in. So it's not, I'm important and I'm a special Christian because I'm a tither if I don't do justice. And it's not because I do justice, but I couldn't give a rip about putting God at first in my finances, that I'm better than everybody else. No, no, no. It's everything. But notice what he's saying here. Is He's saying that the Pharisees have fallen from their place where they once had sincere motives. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah 17, the Bible says that those who have fallen from God, God will write in the dirt you know why Jesus wrote in the dirt too? To tell them, look at how far you have fallen. Here's what he was saying. You once had pure motives. He, here's what he's saying. You as those that are righteous should be the ones who are standing up for justice, not the perpetrators of injustice. Here's what he's saying to us. He's saying that our justification requires that we be people of justice. What is justification? It's a big Bible word that means just as if we never sinned. It means the realization that even though you and I were supposed to die for our sins and pay the penalty of eternal separation for our sins, that Jesus was the one who died in our place so that we wouldn't get what we deserved. He took the punishment on him so we could receive God's best. He became sin so we could become God's righteousness. He gave us his grace even though we deserve punishment. And because, listen carefully, our hearts have been touched by his grace, it is from our hearts that we should be people of justice. I don't need anybody to tell me why this behavior toward this person when it's not applied toward this person is unjust. I can automatically have a heart for that person because my life was touched by his grace it's not what's on the outside it's not the have to's it's not the laws that can be imposed on us by society that would make us be people who do justice it is what God has done on the inside of us it is our justification in Christ and the grace that we have received that should emanate from our heart and make us people who want to defend the defendless and want to help those who can't help for themselves and want to stick up for the marginalized and the oppressed we should have that in our heart. Jesus is saying, you should be the ones. You're not the ones. Matter of fact, do you know that one of the key signs of true justification is justice? Ready? James chapter 2, verse number 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now watch. Here's what we think when we think deeds. I'm not minimizing this. Someone has faith but no deeds. Here's what the Christian culture of our time has taught the church. The deeds are don't smoke, don't curse, don't don't commit sexual sins. Those are the deeds that need to accompany your Christianity, and they need to. Be holy even as I'm holy. But notice that's not where Paul puts the emphasis on the deeds that should accompany your salvation. He says, can such faith save them? Suppose, here's the example he gives, a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. What is the accompany action that is evidence of justification? It is doing justice. It is giving people basic human decency. It is helping those who cannot help themselves for whatever reason that may be. Matter of fact, at the end of time, when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, Matthew chapter 25, verse 32 all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Assuredly, saying as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, done it to me. What's going on? Jesus is saying, I know that you've been justified. By the way, justification is not by works, it's by grace. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. In other words, you could be a person that does all of these things and still go to hell. It's not either or. But those who have made Jesus the Lord of their life and been touched by the grace of God and been justified in their heart, the evidence, the fruit thereof, is how do we treat the marginalized, the oppressed? They overlooked the father, the widow, the stranger, and the poor. He said, it's one of the signs of justification. That's what he's saying. It's not our duty. It's our joy. It's our joy to do it. The third reason why we ought to be. It's getting deep in here, isn't it? Y'all are just introspective right now. The third reason why we ought to be people who do justice is our world is waiting to see justice. This woman is left alone with Jesus. Jesus is woman, where are thine accusers? Have they all left? She says, where are they? Is anybody left? She says, no one, Lord. Now, we don't know how she lived her life after this encounter because the Bible doesn't tell us, but we have some kind of indication. And the indication is what she confesses with her mouth. She says, no one, Lord. Now, this could mean sir, because it's the same Greek word, but I bet you it means more than sir. I bet you it means that this woman who is practicing carnality and living a life apart from Christ just minutes ago before this encounter has an encounter with God in which justice is exemplified. And the encounter with justice opens the heart so that she recognizes Jesus as Lord. What is God saying to us? He's saying to us that we as Christians need to be people of justice because when we do justice for those that society is not giving justice to or can't do justice for themselves. We're opening the hearts of people to see the true message of the gospel and their lives will be changed. Matter of fact, Jesus ends the story and he says, I am the light of the world and they that follow me will not live in darkness, but will also have the light shining to them. Paraphrasing. What's he saying? He's saying that one of the ways the light comes through you is when you are a person of justice. Now let me close with this little story of how we can flesh this out on a practical level. Because, you know, correcting injustice is a big deal. No one person can do it. It has to be a an approach that is embraced by all of society. But there are things that we can do on an individual level to make it make to start making a difference. So on Monday I flew to 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 Houston, Texas. And I flew out on Monday. I came back on Tuesday, and I didn't want to go because my schedule was so busy. And I said, Lord, I really don't want to go. And it was a pastor's meeting with just a small group of pastors. And I said, it's nice to see everybody and hobnob and all that kind of stuff. I said, but, you know, I got more important things to do. And the Lord said to me, he said, but I want you to go. I said, okay, you the boss. But the whole time, you know, when you just do something when God says it, but you're not really happy in your heart about it. It's like, oh, geez, I got to really tithe. (laughs) Don't give grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Right? So, so I'm like, God, I don't really want to go. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I can't. I'm in the car. I'm like, I'm in traffic going to to JFK, and I'm like, this just just stinks. And then, and then my flight is delayed, and 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 they don't have a lounge where I need the lounge to be. So now I got to hang out with all the common folk, and they, you know, out there, and I'm like, oh, get on the plane. I'm like, I might as well make the best of this spent four hours studying out, four hours studying coming back. I had to be to my meeting at at five. The plane landed at 4.15. I got outside about 4.20 and I called an Uber. Now I'm in a rush. I got to get back to the hotel. I got to I got to change the plane clothes because you know when you're on a plane, your clothes start to stink, right? And then that happened. And I'm like, I got to change the plane clothes, and you know, so I got, I'm gonna. So I call the Uber driver, and I get this little note next to the guy who, who picks me up. who's oh, was gonna pick me up, and it says, "Driver is deaf." <laughs> Can I be real? I said, I don't have time for a deaf person right now. (laughs) I said, I got a limited amount of time to get to the hotel, get changed, and get to where I got to go. I need somebody that I can communicate with. Like, you know, I can say, how about this shortcut right here? And why don't you go around this and so on? So I don't have time for this. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, I'll just cancel the drive and get another Uber drive. And the Lord says to me, That's unjust. He said, do you know how many people have canceled this man who is trying to earn a decent living, an honest living, because they didn't have time for a deaf Uber driver? And matter of fact, he said, he said, here's this guy who's just wanting to not be a burden on society, but he has something that was imposed upon him. He didn't ask for it. He was just born like this. And you, who are supposed to be a representative of me, don't have time to be inconvenienced because the guy is deaf. Are you kidding me? I don't know if you've ever had conversations like that with God, but if you haven't, it's just because you're not listening. Because God will tear you a new one sometimes, you know. Just and so I'm like, all right, man, my arm's too short to box with you. You get your way, you know. But he better get me down on time. <laughs> so he comes rolling up, gets out of the car, he motions to me that you know he's deaf, and but he can talk like a little, you know. And uh, so he's kind of giving me like half words and stuff like that, and and I'm kind of getting what he's got to say, and. You know, he puts my, my, my bag in the trunk and opens the door for me, and I sit down. He comes and sits in. As soon as he sits in, as soon as I get in, there's Christian music playing on the radio. Now, so I say to him, I like your music. <laughs> He's looking at me, read my lips, so he got it. He got so excited, he took off his glasses on his hat. He had this hat on, took his glasses on his hat, and he pointed like this, and it said, armor of God. So ready, ready? So I said, I'm a pastor. I didn't tell him I was the pastor who was going to cancel his Uber pickup because he was deaf. I said, I'm a pastor. I hid my warts and I presented myself as holy and righteous. Have you ever hid your warts and presented yourself as holy and righteous? Have you just got out there and pretended like you didn't have nothing else going on in your life just because it just would make you look good and feel good? That's what I did. He said, I'm a pastor. You know what he said? He pulled out his little, he had a whiteboard there so he could write. Pulled it out. He said, I'm an evangelist. He held it out like this. I thought, how are you an evangelist? So so I said to him, I said, well, how are you an evangelist? He hasn't left yet, so he's reading my lips and we're communicating in different ways. And he says, through both this board and his partial communication, he says, people get into this Uber all the time. This is my church. This is how I'm an evangelist. And he said, because inevitably they ask me questions like, when I tell them about God, however he communicates that, how is it that you believe in God? Being deaf and all. And I asked him, I said, you, were you born deaf? He said, yeah, I was born deaf. And he said, here's what I tell him. He takes his board out again. And by the way, isn't this good theology? Uh, my Uber ride is my church. Now, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean I do that instead of church. But it's where I share the gospel. What's your church? Where do you share the gospel? It's the only place you ever hear the gospel. i talk about the gospel is when you're here because you are called to be an evangelist. And so he, he said, when people ask me how I could believe in God, and he takes out his little whiteboard and he writes Jeremiah 1, five on it. Now, I told him I was a pastor. So I'm so sure he's assuming that I know what that verse But I did know what the verse is. And I started to cry. Because the verse says, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you here 's what this man was telling me. He was saying that the reason why I believe in God is because I know that God created me, and I come to the place where I, he created me as I am He created and he just He made me, and my value comes from not what I have or not what I possess or not what the world says I should look like or act like, but my value comes from the fact that I am a masterpiece of Almighty God, and by virtue of that, I have faith in God. Don't tell me that, don't preach from that deaf driver and touch the hearts of every person that comes into that Uber. What was God doing? God was teaching me something. He's teaching me something about justice. That we need to value people, even if they don't believe like we believe. Even if they don't act like we act, even if they are not a part of the party that we're a party of, simply because they were created by God Almighty. And God didn't create them to be lost. God created them to come into contact with somebody who was carrying light so that they would know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And if you get mad at everybody who doesn't agree with you and refusing to talk to and everybody who doesn't agree with you, how in the world are you going to let your light shine in this dark world? It is time for us to be people of justice, liberty, and justice, not for some. It's not an American value, it's a Christian value. Would you stand to your feet?